Welcome to Get Phil Voted In, the podcast devoted to why Phil Collins should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist. I'm your host, Tracy Baker, and with each episode of Get Phil Voted In, we'll hear from guests who have worked with Phil, written about him, or just enjoyed his music. I'll be joined by my co-host, Kathy Steffen, throughout the series. We'll be going back to look at Phil's career, and if you hang in long enough, I know we can get Phil voted in. So sit back, turn up the volume, and let's celebrate all things Phil. Hi, Brad. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm so happy that you're part of the Get Phil Voted In podcast series, and um, I really am excited that you're spending time with me today. When I first thought about doing this interview with you, I thought, I'm not a drummer. What am I going to ask him? But then when I started developing my questions for you, I realized that I could keep you here all day. I have so much that I want to talk about. But before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about you first. You're a professional drummer who's been working in the music industry since the mid-70s. You've worked with many bands over the year, most notably Prince and, of course, our own Phil Collins. And you're a native of Minnesota, I think, yes? Yeah, I was born uh, out in uh... Bethesda, Maryland, and then we moved to Barron, Wisconsin. I was in in uh, my hometown here in Hastings, Minnesota, uh, by the time I was, I think I started first grade here, yeah. <laughs> I, live, I live in a suburb of Minneapolis now. How old were you when you started to play drums? When the Beatles started. Wow. That was, I would have been probably a junior, I don't know, sophomore in high school. I mean, I was about 15 or 16, I guess. I played uh, I played trumpet in the grade school and the junior high band, and then the Beatles started happened, and uh, so I wanted a set of drums, and the parents wouldn't buy me a set of drums because they said I couldn't make music with drums, so they bought me a guitar and I played that until I could afford to buy drums. That is amazing, and you and you've played ever since. Yeah, and but you do you still play things like trumpet and guitar? Do you keep up? Do you practice? Trumpet? No, I don't even have one. I don't know uh, what happened to it. <laughs> oh, I know what happened to it. I, I gave it to our keyboard player in one of my first bands, and it fell off his organ one day, one night, and bent the bell up so it looked like Dizzy Gillespie. But he he uses it the whole time. And, you know, back then it's not anything about towing as long as it works. And <laughs> right, right. So, were you technically trained as a drummer? Did you take lessons? Are you technically, or are you a guy who just self-taught? No, I, like I say, the Beatles started. I, I got a pair of dolls from out in the garage and sat on the uh, armchair arm of my, our sofa and played along with Ringo, air drums. And that's how I learned. Ringo is often um, kind of, I think, people don't recognize how good he really was, you know, and I think um, I think he's a really amazing drummer and, and he wasn't given the right credit, I don't think. Well, it's like a lot of people don't even know that Phil can play drums. I right. think he's singer you know <laughs> it's unbelievable um okay so your nickname is munchy or munch how yeah. did that come about where where did that happen because uh i was on it was on my first tour with the guys i think and and uh we were in europe and I, they caught me going in and out of the catering tent all day so that somebody gave me the name munchy and it stuck even phil calls me munch every everybody calls me munch that's awesome so, even people back here that aren't in on the whole thing they you know it was kind of weird when my hometown friends started calling me munchie and oh god here we go but it's all right yeah it's cute i like it i like it so i know you're an animal lover i think do you have a couple cats right now 
No, I've just got one cat, which I'm looking at right now. But... Oh, your baby. Yeah. What's her name? Her name is Sadie. Oh, hi, Sadie. Hi, Sadie. <laughs> hi, Sadie. She's trying to find another place to sleep. <laughs> so I've heard about a special kitty on tour. Was that your your baby, so to speak? The, 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 kitty, little... is, the kitty is back here. Can you see this? A little, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Right there in my old aquarium. This is my souvenir vault. There's oh, all kinds of stuff in there, but the cat is there and one of Prince's boots and some programs and a drawing that Phil did of me and uh, all kinds of stuff. That, that, that's, there's the cat. That's the famous cat. Now, how did that happen? Where did you find the cat and how many tours was it on? I found the cat in Nisswa, Minnesota at a gift shop and, and brought it over to big band rehearsals, second big band rehearsals for Phil and put it in front of the kick drum and stayed there ever since. That was in 19, <laughs> what, 96 or 97, I think. Yeah. yeah. So but it's I, got its own, it's a, it's got its own slotted, you know, padded slot in the snare drum case. And it I take care of it. it you know, there have been stagehands when it was new, they'd walk up to it and they'd think it was real and try and wake it up. Because <laughs> it was, it, it's a little, you know, dog-eared now, but it's been through a lot. Did it go on the Genesis tours too? This last one was the last that didn't go on that one. Uh, no. That was the first tour it didn't go on. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I just I don't, I wanted to save it. Then there's it's made of styrofoam, and then there's rabbit fur over that. Wow. And the styrofoam you can tell inside it started to deteriorate, so it's rattling around. Yeah. So I want to save it. You know, attached to it now. It is a legendary in in the in the world of of music for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about a, a, a boot from Prince that's in your in your collection. You worked with Prince from eighty four to eighty nine. That I mean had to have been amazing. Um, did you take care of the drums for everybody in Prince's band, Sheila E. and whoever else played drums? Or yeah, I probably started out as Bobby Z's drummer, Prince's original drummer, and I was. The, first drum roadie they used and i was a big fan before his i bought his i ordered his first record before it even came out because i read so much about him in the local music rags and so when the when the offer came from a friend of mine to hey you want to be the drum roadie for prince yeah okay <laughs> i jumped at that and i was immediate and i was i had been playing in one of the better bands around town in the state and uh but i immediately made a jump twice as much making, you know, making twice as much setting up drums. And I thought that was great. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's That's been a, good. I, I can't imagine. What, what was it like? Um, did you get to hang out with Prince? And what, well, Prince, Prince played drums himself. He's a real, he's a real good drummer, yeah. self-taught again. And I took care of Bobby Z, like I said, and then Sheila E replaced him. And then for a, uh, uh, Michael Bland was who I was working with when I decided to make the move. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I went out and did uh, a year uh, with the Sirius tour. And I came back and I was the first, like, I was the first drum roadie. I came back and I was the first one to ever have been able to leave and then get hired back again. Because usually wow. when you when you leave, you see it. You know. That's with, with yeah. Prince, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I asked a few years later, I said on Facebook or something, I said, 
anybody know who's uh, the drum tech for Prince? And and they say, does, somebody said, doesn't everybody know better by now? Like nobody wants to do it because it's oh. just, it's in like any, any position with Prince, it's a lot of pressure at times. And right. A lot of times you just want to, you know. Temperamental artist kind of thing. Well, yeah, there was a time also in that year. I think it was the year that I, after I did the year with Collins, I came back and I, we were in rehearsal and had been in rehearsal forever, it seemed. And then one Friday, Prince said, that's it. You got the weekend off. And we all go, yeah, yeah. And uh, we went down to our office and then the, the office upstairs called and said, Prince is going in the studio. And I got in my car and I think I was on two wheels going out of Paisley Park. And I flew into Chanhassen, the village there, and uh, to the local bowling alley bar and slammed about three or four beers and then got on the payphone in the bowling alley and called his manager. And I, there I was in the bowling alley. On the pay, we didn't have cell phones yet. And uh, I was crying. I said to his manager, you know, we've got, we've got family, we've got personal lives, and we can't do it, any of us. <laughs> so we got called in the office a day or two later and thinking we we're going to get fired or something. And, and his manager said, Prince doesn't want to see you in here for another 17 days. He said, the crew is more important than the band. Wow. So, yeah, then, uh, so the next day, <laughs> no, yeah, the next day I, I'm sitting at home enjoying my time off and I get a call from the office, Prince is going in the studio. And uh, I said, well, call Michael Bland's in-town tech and see if he can do it. So she called back, said, yeah, he's going to do it. And I think, well, he's going to want to use the electronics along with everything else. So I went out there, Paisley Park, and I set up the whole drum set with all the electronics and da-da-da-da-da. And on my way out of the studio through the sound lock, I punched the wall and I broke this bone here. So I was in a cast for about four or five weeks at least. Oh, wow. My whole time off, nicest part of the summer, I Wow. Would would an injury like that be something that would prevent you possibly from playing drums in the future if it didn't heal right? Oh, it could, but like I've had other hand surgery on my thumbs. Uh, There's a cadaver, there's a tendon from a cadaver in each one of my thumbs. That happened about 10 years ago. And they were, well, after the uh, 2007 Genesis tour, I came home and I could barely tie my shoes. So I got that hand fixed. And everything's fine now, oh. even this this long afterwards. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, like with any injury, I suppose you don't take care of it. Take care of it right; it's going to cause you problems down the road. Yeah, but but you still can play like like the old days. Oh yeah, and I got a, had a knee replaced last January, and and four weeks later I was on the road with Genesis, and uh, one of my first concerns was can I can I play the drums with that foot and it's no problem i just had to be careful of everything else you know they had a wheelchair waiting for me in each airport on the way over to europe and uh they had a, they got an assistant to help me in case i needed help lifting stuff and yeah yeah they take care of us yeah they've always taken care of us they put us in nice hotels and they yeah we get great we our catering is the best restaurant in town every night so Not so much in the States. Over in Europe, we, we carry our own catering, and they're really good. They're really good. Do they travel with you, the same group of caterers, then? Yeah. Yeah. The one, over there, they do, uh-huh. in Europe. 
and otherwise. But in the States, we use in-house catering and it's like, eh, I don't want to eat today. <laughs> I, think I'll, I think I'll have a bread sandwich here or something. <laughs> so, Brad, I read somewhere that you actually performed on some Prince tracks. Is that true? I played tambourine on a song called America, which was on the Around the World in a Day album. And that started in rehearsal when, before Paisley Park. And uh, we were still in a tire warehouse rehearsing. And he just threw me a tambourine when they started to rehearse the song. And I played it behind, I was sitting behind the council with Susan Rogers, the engineer. And, and I just, I played tambourine for, it must've been 20 minutes or half an hour. The song that they're just jamming on it. And um, it's, it's on the record. It's only, you know, three or four minutes long, but it's at that day. I'm glad he used it. And then there's another time we, I think it was on the, uh, Sign of the Times album or Love Sexy that we were out in, at Sunset Sound and did uh, the the crew of a, the like four of us on the crew and his man his bodyguard. He, we were in the ISO booth and he just had us make certain sounds on his cue or shout something. Yeah. And there's a, you can hear my whistle. My whistle is in a song called Housequake. That's that's the only thing I can cl- really claim to. I uh-huh. did get I did get. Uh, a royalty. I think it was one hundred and twelve dollars and seven cents. Do you still get a royalty check? No, I have a check lately, but I'm. I, I should. You know, I will. I, I figure if that's how much I'm going to get after twenty years, I'm not really concerned about <laughs> what could follow. Um, I know you and I had talked a couple times before the interview and you had, you had mentioned that oh, you're open to, to playing live and being in, in, in a band. What projects are you working on right now, either personally like that, or are there any no. gigs that... You- no, I'm looking for a band. I've let a few people know, but the music scene, it's back in the 70s and 80s for that matter. Well, yeah, I mean, there were, everybody was working four to five nights a week, every week. There were clubs everywhere, and now that's all gone. Yeah. So after the, the pandemic and, you know, people would rather watch, go watch something on their phone and go out and do this or that. Yeah. But uh, it's starting to come back a little bit, and I've got my feelers out. And certain yeah. people know and certain people don't because I don't want to play with them. <laughs> <laughs> are you um, Are you going to still drum tech at all? Um, are there any plans in the future for, for any tours or working with anybody? Not at this point. I've got to get my other knee fixed. Probably this fall. Uh, got to get my other knee replaced. But I couldn't do another tour right now with my, that knee like it is. My The knee that I had replaced last January is coming along really good. It's fine. But uh, my other one is following the same route, pain. Yeah. Yeah. So um, once you get that taken care of, if, if something comes along, we might see you. Well, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it fixed this fall. Just in the wild chance that Phil or Jen, it'd be Janice. I don't know who it'd be if Phil or Jen was out after after the first of the year. I don't see it happening, and I've been told it ain't going to happen. But never say never. I mean, you know, uh, well, that's what they said about Phil too. He was just going to go. His last solo tour was just going to be uh, four weeks in England, and then uh, he injured himself in the first week. 
Uh, so we completed that little run, and then we had to go back to Europe, which is just what we finished up now uh, in March, and uh, uh, make up the three London dates. Yes. Yeah. So that's what that's what uh, you know. That well, anyway, that was just supposed to be a month, and it turned into two and a half years and ninety-seven shows in four continents. That was unbelievable. You know what's yeah. interesting about the London dates? They had to be rescheduled. And I don't know if this is actually true, but I had read somewhere that, the, of course, we all know that first uh, time Phil sang for Genesis was, he tells the story that it was in London, Ontario um, in 1975, I think. And um, somebody did the research and said it was March 26th, 1975, that he first sang for Genesis. And then we all think the last Genesis show is what they tell us was March 26th. In London, but England. oh, is that where it was? That, is that the coincidence? Oh, that's that's interesting. I don't go back that far, but but yeah. I, yeah, that's I don't know if they I doubt if they had that in mind, but who knows? No, because it was a rescheduled date, so it was really if it's true, if that statistic is true, it's pretty just, fateful. It was just luck of the draw, I guess, yeah, right, exactly. But yeah, I thought that was kind of that was kind of fun. Speaking of Phil, I think we'll jump into all the Phil questions now. You mentioned you started on the Sirius tour, which was 1990. That was when you first started with Phil. And, and you, you didn't start with Genesis. You started with him. And then how did that happen? What, how did you get hired? Um, tell me a little bit about that. I was working with Prince and a friend of mine, Rob Colby, who had started working for Prince the same time I did. He had gone on and wound up working with Phil. And he called from Japan and said they're looking for a drum tech for Chester Thompson. And I jumped at it. Because I, I was kind of tired and and of Prince and they had, had new management and I was nah, new production, but uh, yeah, so that's how that happened. I did took care of Chester up until uh, what was it the uh, both sides tour when uh, Ricky Lawson was brought in. Was that yeah. was both sides before Dancing to the Light? Yep, both sides. Yeah. I think ninety four, um, and then yeah. Dancing. The light was 97, I think. So I, I was um, Steve Jones, I, who is now a tour manager. He called me and he was he had been our, he had been Phil's tech, dumb tech. And then he was going to move up to production manager. So he called me and said that, well, Ricky Lawson's going to be the drummer. Chester's not going to do it. And uh, so I was out of a gig. Ah. And then two weeks later, he called back and said, how would you like to take care of Elvis? That's what we call Phil. And uh, I said, what's he think about it? He said, well, if, if you can't do it, then I can't make the move up to production manager. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he, of course I'd do it. So it, it was the same, you know, with Phil and Genesis and Genesis and Phil. It, it was all the same bunch. It was the crew, you know. I was the only American, and I had to uh, go through a two- or three-week probationary period, which I almost didn't make it. I don't know for what reason. I don't know for what reason, but or what reason it was they decided, yeah, he's going to work out. But um, we all got along great, and uh, so I took care of uh, Chester up until uh, what was it? Yeah, the both sides tour. So then, yeah, then, then Ricky was playing drums, and I was taking care of Phil. It turned out to be a, a more you had more of a longevity in terms of the career with with Genesis and Phil because you know Prince eventually stopped playing really and touring. Um, so it was I think a good move, Brad. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I don't. You know, there's 
if you work for Prince, at least you're working full time, which can be good or bad because we were, we had beepers and we'd, you know, we couldn't do anything. We'd get beeped and had to go into Paisley Park and work and sit there till four or five in the morning and then go home, get a few hours sleep, then come back at 11, and get ready for rehearsal and do that. And then he'd go in the studio again and we'd do it all. You know, that went on weeks. But, you know, if he kept you around, he you knew you were appreciated. There were, there were people that came in and they got fired the first day. Mm. Wow. Prince, Prince didn't like him for some reason. Right. It just, yeah, didn't work. Um, do, you, do you remember the uh, first meeting with Phil? Uh, and as far as like when you first met him, even probably back when you were still teching with Chester. Um, and then how did things go when with your first gig where you had to take care of Phil's drums? How did that go? Give us the inside scoop. I first met Phil backstage at a Prince concert and uh, at Wembley Arena. And I saw him coming backstage after the show, after the show. I said, "Oh, it's Phil Collins!" So I quick grabbed a drum back there and started you know, fiddling around with it. I wasn't doing anything, and so he walked up and said, "She take care of the drums, huh?" I'll tell everybody, tell the band it was absolutely great, and da 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 da. da. But that's the first time I met him, and then uh, you know, I'm, I went into rehearsal. Uh, I already knew Phil from where, from taking care of Chester. So when I it, it was my turn to tech for him, I showed up at rehearsal in Chittingfold, and he just said, "Tune my drums." So I sat down and did it. And he came back and said, "He said you can tune my drums anytime, any day of the week." So that was it. <laughs> you passed. Yeah. You passed with flying colors, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Sure. That's awesome. So, so there wasn't a huge learning curve for you. I mean, it was. You'd been around. You kind of knew his work, and yeah, yeah, I know what what it's supposed to sound like when when it's supposed to sound like that, and that is, you know, there have been samples that electronic samples that were supposed to be back when Chester was, you know, we were rehearsing for the '93 Genesis tour, We Can't Dance, and and there's supposed to be a sample somewhere, and I had, and the, the monitor guy was riding the fader so the sample worked but it didn't happen oh. and and uh, i was eating shortly after that i was eating lunch and somebody said hey, uh, uh, phil said that sample wasn't there and i threw my silverware down and ran i was on the hunt for the monitor guy i was going to kill and oh. phil found out and he, he intercepted me and said much much that's, that's okay <laughs> so <laughs> i explained what was going on yeah He's yeah. bitched at me before, but it's always been, I'm in the bomb site. It's not because of me. He called me back up to his dressing room, whatever, 20 minutes later and say, I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah. Right. No, but you obviously must be good because to have been with them for that long. Yeah. So I'm doing great. something, right? Exactly. For sure. Phil is left-handed, we all know. And I've heard him say that when he was young and just starting out, that he'd mirror the kit totally the opposite, I think is what he said. Did drum manufacturers ever eventually make things for lefties, or is it just the components and a matter of how you set it up? It's just how you set it up. Okay. Yeah, the left-handed drums, as far as I know. No, I didn't because I don't know. I'm not a drummer, so it's probably the dumbest question ever. Well, I'm a drummer, and I don't know the names of a lot of like what I need. One of those little springy bits in the snare drum. I don't know where there's a name for it, but. Or this or that. I need that little lever that does this. As a right-handed guy, 
is it hard, like intuitively hard for you to set up the kit in a for him um, at all? Or no, I just set it up and I mark everything where it is, and you know that's good for about a week, and then he changes things around. But once I figure out where he wants things, and then uh, you know everything's marked, and you know so the heights and the positioning is pretty well set. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of height. Uh, I know the drumming, uh, the seat height varies depending on the drummer. And I always thought that Chester looked like he sat really high and that Phil looks like he sat really low. Um, is that true? Did did they, are they, you know? Well, Phil's, Phil sits, or well, Chester was almost standing up. <laughs> when, I, when I was when I set up to his drums during the day, I'd have my own throne to sit on because I couldn't play the drum sitting where how he did. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was quite high and... Uh, and Phil's not really low, like I sit lower when I play drums, but he uses this little antique drum throne, which is probably why his back is screwed up. Uh-huh. But he, you know, it's some so much of his drum set is old stuff. He wants, you know, I use him to know about new equipment. And so yeah. that's how that works. Yeah, I I think it was an interview that he talked about the um the thing that's for the kick drum is something they don't even make anymore. And that he uses that. Is that well, true? They, yeah. It's a speed King pedal. They make them, but they're, they're made better now, uh-huh. but uh, most people when, you know, speed Kings were kind of like, eh, passe back then, you know, I don't want, but there was uh, John Bond from uh, Led Zeppelin. used one also. Yeah. So the old school guys all use that old stuff. Yeah, he loves it. For as long as you've been with Phil Brad, has he used the same brand of drums? Yeah, he, had- he started yeah. using Premier drums. And then by the time I got in there, he had been using Gretsch drums. And that's what he still uses. Oh, Gretsch. Uh-huh. And Chester? Chester used uh, Sonar drums when I was with him. He used Ayat drums. And he was using, I think he uses Drum Workshop, DW drums now. Now, has Phil changed the number or type of drums that are in his setup over the years? Has has that changed very much? No, not no. him. He he used to you have a lot more bells and whistles on his drum set before I showed up. But uh-huh. uh, when I came in, he was it's just a basic kit, left-handed. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, so he didn't he didn't have any of the little sort of. Uh, what do you call those chimes and all that stuff that he had talked about when he was, you know, just starting in Genesis? Yeah. He, he used to use that kind of stuff with brand X's fusion group back, back in the day, but with, with Genesis and such, he doesn't use it maybe in the studio, but we, that's why we have a percussionist, which was Luis Conte and then Richie Garcia. And uh, we had another guy when he first decided to use a percussionist, he brought someone in that, after the first couple songs, everybody in the room knew he wasn't going to work. It was, <laughs> and it was sad. You know? oh. And uh, he found it was he. That, so on that tour, we said no. He said no to the percussionist and he just wound up using a shaker himself, Phil. Uh, and then the next tour, we got Luis Conte. Who's amazing. Yeah. Phil yeah. Luis is great. One man band. Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. How about symbols? Somebody wanted me to ask you, I, I asked people that I know that are sort of musician-y types because I was like, I don't know what to ask. So 
What about symbols? Did Phil use the same kind of symbol throughout his career with you? Um, has he changed? Do those change in size? How many? That sort of thing. No, he's pretty much the same. He uses Sabian symbols, and uh, Chester also used Sabian when I was working with him. I yeah. think both of them might might have Chester might have used Pisces symbols early on, or and Phil used Zildjian maybe on early on. But mm -hmm. that's what they're using when I joined up with Sabian. Now there was, yeah, Sabian, they had a, a VIP offering on the Los, the last Genesis tour. And, and if you got to go to the VIP thing, you got this little necklace and it was made, you got, yeah. yeah I've, got, you, I've got one somewhere, yeah. Yeah, this is it. So that, is that one, so everybody who went to the, the dinner got one, but theirs wasn't made out of a, a symbol that Phil played. But if you won the trivia contest, you got it. Is that one you have one that he played? Oh, I don't know. The uh, Carly, a wardrobe girl, gave me two of these in the last few weeks of, her, of the tour. So I don't know if that's, that's cool. uh, one or not. But it's, you know, one more little thing to hang up. Not one of those uh, of the of the symbols that he played. And oh, you did. I, I have it on display at home like it's, you know, <laughs> super. Did you make a did you make a box for it and everything? A shadow box? Well, not yet, but I will. I'm going to probably put it in with my my tambourine <laughs> that I got. Yeah, I, got a, I got a drum head that they signed the last night of the tour. And I had that put in a shadow box. And I had no idea it was going to cost that much. But it looks nice. <laughs> you know, that's why, yeah, those framers charge an arm and a leg. Um, yeah, this was a special thing. It's the, that was signed by all the guys. And so there was the last gig. And it's, you know, it's worth a lot to me. I heard you do an interview for the 2007 tour. I watched the when in Rome, um, I think is what it was. Oh, God. No, no, we'll get to that later. That part, that's, this question is not about that, but that'll be fun. But um, you had mentioned that Phil uses concert toms, which are single headed tom toms. Um, so are the rest of his drums double headed or does he use all single headed drums? And how does that make a difference in how it sounds? He uses a, uh... All concert tom toms for his tom toms, and the snare drum, of course, has two heads, and his bass drum has one head. Uh -huh. Chester was the opposite; he had heads, top and bottom heads, uh -huh. and it's they're a bit harder to tune. And when you play the drums, the single-headed toms don't have the internal combustion or compression that you, uh, the bounce back from the bottom head. So the you know you have to work a bit harder. Mm -hmm. And why did he do that? Why would he do that? It was just his personal preference or he liked how it sounded? Yeah, a lot of drummers back in the early days of him and Genesis were taking the bottom heads off their drums for volume and whatever else for the sound. They do sound a little bit. They do sound different. And the way he plays them sounds different than everybody. So you can have 10 drummers sit on the same drum set and they'll all sound different. Which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, don't if you think about it, because... You know, it's it's whatever's inside of you that's that's making well, that. It's, it's how you hit. It's how you approach the drum and hit it, and it's a whole combination of things. Yeah. Well, you know, my next question is actually. Um, I think what defines part of Phil's signature sound is is really. I think part of it is how hard he hits it. it, it if I, is that true? And, and um, do you have any idea why he hits it so hard? Well, his drumsticks are about two inches shorter than. Most drum six. Uh, so he doesn't, I don't think of him as hitting hard. He didn't, 
Uh, Nicholas hits a lot harder. Really? Yeah, he, he's, he uses bigger sticks, and he's a he's a bigger guy. When Nicholas started, he was just a scrawny little seventeen year old. Now he's twenty years, twenty one years old, and he can he can put some wood to the drums. <laughs> That's cool. Let's see. Yeah. So, so, so Phil doesn't hit it as hard as, as I, as I, I think I've heard people say that about his drumming style is part of the no, sound. It looks, it looks like he's hitting it harder because like Prince, he's got a unique style. It looks like he's really, it's, but he's just kind of slapping using the drum drumsticks, like slapping the drums. It's not, it's, it's not, he's not pounding him, you know? Oh, interesting. Just uh, Prince played the same kind of way. Just, but it works, you know. Yeah, I did. That's very, see, these are the kinds of things that I was dying to learn from you. That's, that's very interesting. I know that when you were um, working with Phil, he, he was, he wasn't necessarily drumming a whole show even, you know, because he was singing, but um, for example, on the big band tour, he drummed almost the whole show. Did you have to replace the drum heads every show? Um, you do? No, no, no. Phil, he didn't like he didn't like new heads. He, he, I, he would ask me to change heads. I'd be looking at the drums for days and to kind of wish I could change the drum head. But and he, one day I, I was looking at the floor time, one of the floor times, and he hit it and he said, "You really want to change that drum head?" I said, "Yeah." And it's but he just likes when I put new heads on it, the smallest tom toms. Uh, I had to beat before he came in for sound check and played them. I had to beat them up so they had pits in them. So they sounded like they're a week old. Okay. So so you would you would beat on them for a while to get yeah. them ready for him so that they mm-hmm. weren't fresh, fresh, fresh. That's cool. A Chester's the other way. You like new heads. And so would you change Chester then every show? Not every show, no. About every two or three shows, maybe. Yeah, about every two or three shows. But Phil's, Phil's heads lasted a week or two, you know, usually at least. And then will they break eventually? Is that sort of what happens? No, he never broke. Phil never broke a head as long as I worked with him. Never. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chester, the only thing that he broke was a bass drum head. When I first started with it, that was not my fault. and But it happened in the last song, so I was okay. <laughs> Well, in that case, did you ever, you never had to replace a head during a show? Nothing weird has ever happened like that? No, but Chester, he had two bass drums. So it that's, so when his main bass drum works, he can always play on the other one. But Phil only had one. So if Phil broke a bass drum, you'd have to change it. And which is why I changed, which is why I changed Phil's bass drum on this last, or Nick's bass drum once every four shows three or four shows mm-hmm. and they were still visibly good but i just was thinking well if he breaks it you know it's gonna it's gonna be 15 minutes for me to take it out and change it and put it put it back up and da. it's nobody's gonna die but it's, right that would uh, suck though <laughs> it was for my own peace of mind that i did it right proactive yeah, yeah um well, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. It's your job and you're responsible for it. And if, if, if you delay a show in the middle of a show, 15 minutes, you're going to get more chewed out than the other, you know? So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, the the Remo drum head, I, I actually I have I have one from the 2007 tour that I actually got in an auction that all five guys, Chester and Phil and and Tony and Mike um, and Daryl signed, which is something I cherish. And it's a Remo head. And a friend of mine said, I think it's probably one that Phil played because I don't think Chester used the Remo heads. Is, is that true? No, they both used Remo heads. Remo, uh, Chester used Chester used an emperor. Phil uses an ambassador. Oh, okay. That emperor is a bit heavier. Oh, that's interesting. So that's Chester two, heavier. I think that's two layers. Yeah. And uh, Phil, uh, ambassador is just one, one ply. Okay. I'll have to look when I go home and see <laughs> which one it's I have. Up there, either emperor or ambassador. If it's an emperor, it's a Chester head. I'll, I'll look. I'll let you know. Right. <laughs> I'll send you a picture. Back to, I, I think I thought Phil hit it really hard, but he doesn't necessarily. But was Phil hard on the sticks? I, I know having the shorter stick is, you know, obviously, but do sticks break often when you're playing a live show? And, and, and does that happen? And you have to replace them? And how does that work? Well, Phil would maybe go through one, one, maybe two sticks per show. And, uh, you know, if they got a little bit chewed up, I'd replace them. But Nicholas, on the other hand, he likes to use his, he does, he'll, he'll play a drumstick to the point of it's going to break and I'll look at it. It's just all chewed up in the middle. And I'll look back at me and smile. I say, uh, you know, he, hands, he hands all his broken sticks to me. And so, do you yeah, say some of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. And and so, why does Phil use a stick? I think his is fourteen and three fourths or something, seven eighths. Why? I've heard that maybe it was when he was doing Brand X, but the shorter stick gave him a little more ability to get around the kit quicker. Well, and again, he doesn't even hold a stick like a drummer is supposed to. He holds the stick way at the butt end of it, and I've got a wrap of. A strip of gaffer tape. The length is it's the length of the stick, and then I wrap that around the butt end, so it's a little thing for him to hold on to. So yeah. that's he holds it right at the back end. I've noticed that, and it's almost like it's his wrist moves, you know, and it's kind of very precarious. It looks to me like it could fly out because he's not super yeah. gripping. Is that that's true, right? I mean, no, he. I he, I didn't know him to lose a stick, uh, Chester. There was one night where he uh, he started a, a he was going to do a fill a drum roll, and he started the roll on the cymbal on the ride cymbal, and he he dropped a stick and it bounced off the floor tom so flew up in the air spun around a couple of times came down and hit another floor tom spun, jumped up in the air again he caught it and just kept you know <laughs> carried on and he looked back at me like did you see that yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, Nicholas uh, is broke, broke more than his fair share of sticks. He breaks about three or four sticks a night. No kidding. Yeah. And he uses pretty beefy sticks, too, so that's what I mean. He's not a little skinny kid anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's, that's, a, that's amazing. I actually own a show-used drumstick, I think. And again, I'm going to send you a picture of it. The person was a tech in New York and um, said it was from 78. Um, back in the Genesis days. And it has that signature taping that you're talking about. It's like a, a, a piece, almost like a piece of rubber at the very back end of the stick. And then um, there's another little tape, you know? And I didn't know if um, if that was something that Phil 
sort of pioneered. And when you joined him, did you did you have to do those things for him, or did I you? Did. Well, when I joined, I was still not. I don't think I was the tech yet, but I suggested to Steve Jones put. I said, "Why don't we?" Right? Oh, I think I brought it up to Stick Company. Yeah, why don't we uh, route a, a channel in the end of the drumstick and put a little rubber washer over there so we yeah. can just yeah. So that didn't happen until at least probably ninety three, right? Ninety four that we started doing that, but then. Shortly after that was when Phil. Well, when when did he go go dormant for a while? What, what years were that? Um, probably. probably yeah, probably. Um, what after the two thousand seven tour? Probably up to two thousand ten. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, then we. Lo- I've still got the drum. Those drum robbers someplace, but uh, like so many other things, I'm still digging through things in my workbox. Fine. Oh, that's where that went. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. I'll send you a picture of that stick, but it was, um, that stick is actually, it says percussion. It's like stamped and the brand is percussion. And then it has Phil fall and stamped in there. So, um, when did he, I don't know, maybe it's not even real. Maybe I've got to send it to you, but when did he start using Promark sticks? I was using them when I started back in 90. Uh-huh. Uh, I, he's probably a couple of years before that, at least. And he's used the same size throughout throughout my time with him. I I, I, I did figure out that he liked the heavier ones, so I Prolock was just sending me the heavy one, heavy version of those sticks, and that worked. That was great. And then he we quit. You know, he went dormant, like I say, for a few years, and then Nicholas started. Then we started doing these one-offs with, uh, you know, Nicholas playing drums and yeah. When you worked with Promark. Do you have, could you venture a guess or do you know how many different Phil Collins sticks they produce? Because I think they probably do it to market and sell them, you know, because the collector. Yeah, I don't know that. Back when we started the, uh, when do it, when we started the, uh, we had rehearsals for Genesis in New York in 2020 for three weeks just to see if Nicholas was going to work out. And and then we, uh, Phil didn't want to tour that summer, so we were going to have like, what, eight months off before Genesis was going to go out. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. I had planned to go home and start playing again. But and, but anyway, everything like sticks and everything else was held up because of the pandemic. The supply chain was all screwed up. So I used to be I'd order 100 to 200 pair of sticks, and I'd have them at the latest two weeks later. And now it was six months or eight months. I'd have to order. Wow! It. wow. We wow. went through a, we went through a lot with the, with the sticks because things have changed with a supply chain with new company. You know, this company bought that company, and uh, it's it's not like it used to be. Right, it's so true. I mean, it's so weird too. Um, this is probably a, the dumb, the second dumbest question. I asked a really dumb question earlier, but. I see Phil with the sweatbands and I actually see you with the sweatbands. And obviously they're probably just to keep the sweat from going on your hands when you're playing and not a fashion statement. <laughs> Is there any right. other reason for them? Do they have to serve another purpose? No, I wear uh, batting gloves when I set when I set the kit up and take it down just to keep the fingerprints off everything. And uh, and the sweatbands just like you say, to keep the sweat off, but everything's to, so I don't have, the, the less I have to polish things, the better. 
So I wear gloves and sweatpants. So I, I'm not putting my sweaty arms and hands all over everything. Right. And Phil, Phil, uses it, Phil uses it for sweat too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they look cool too. <laughs> you guys always look really cool. <laughs> Speaking of sweat on your hands, in an interview, Phil talks about um, having to have your hands tour ready where you endure really painful, bloody blisters that heal and break over and over. Have you gone through that yourself? And have you seen Phil's hands go through it when you guys start on a new tour? And how not bad my, is it? Not my hands. I don't have a problem with I have. I did have a problem with my back when I was starting to play again because I didn't play in a band all the time. I was with Prince. And then when I, after the Genesis tour uh, in 93, I got a new kit and started playing again. And I was using the wrong drum thrown and my back would just ache mm. and, and it was just too hard for me so i got another one and everything's fine now I'm, I'm just old now <laughs> you don't look old <laughs> did you ever see phil go through that with the blood blisters and was it gross and horrible or no he used when he did get a hand problem like that he used what they call steri strips so yeah. waterproof waterproof bandage you you know they back then you could get him through the hospital or whatever and uh but uh, that was just if he had a problem after, you know, like you say, we get used to it and you don't need them. Right. Yeah. The hands callous up, you know, yeah. um, are your hands callous right now or no, no, no. Uh -uh. Mm -hmm. But if you were, if you were in a band and you guys were gigging around, they would be. No, my hands don't get calloused really. You know, everything's, yeah, I haven't played drums now since March, but uh, I have no doubt that I can just, you know, a day or so, and I'd be right back in it. And that happened when I was in another band back in the 90s. I got, let's say, excused from that band. And uh, <laughs> and uh, then about six months later, I got a call from uh, a manager guy, and he said, uh, how would you like to play uh, for Christmas Day? I said, no, I've got family plans. I said, well, you can name your price. I said, who's it with? And he told you it was that band that had excuse me. And so I just played. I had to go up to a casino, play one night with them. I used the drummer's kit because he had to go somewhere for Christmas, I guess. He's a but anyway. So everything it went fine. It went fine. And then, you know, there's another band. The last band I was in before I started this whole thing with Prince and everything, they had excused me as well. But uh, <laughs> temperamental, Brad. Uh, you know, it's, but uh, so a couple summers ago, a singer who's a friend of mine called me and said, can you sub for the drummer this weekend up up at this resort? And I said, yeah. So no rehearsal after 35 years or whatever, 40 years, I, got, I went up there and just sat down and started playing again. There we go. That must feel good, right? Does that feel good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it always feels good to play. People... You know, I'd be setting up the drums during the afternoon with Phil or whatever, and I'd come off and people say, you the drummer? I say, no, no, no. I say, son, like you should be. But, yeah, yeah I got with with on, a, on the Genesis tour, well, now that Nicholas is drumming, I can practice every day a little bit. Now, when Phil was playing drums, that's left-handed, so I don't get a heck of a lot of practice in myself. Right, right. 
Right. So it felt Nicholas is right-handed, like set up and it's great. I get to play drums every day and it sounds great. You know, as a drummer, Brad, was it hard for you to watch Phil struggle during the going back sessions? I mean, he talks about how he taped the sticks to his hand because he was already losing grip in that left hand. How, how was that to see that as a drummer? I didn't see him do any, even attempt any kind of drumming. I've, I've seen the video of him recording that thing with these wrapping his hands and everything. But I didn't have any of that with the actual tour and the rehearsals over in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was I going to say? Oh, what was hard was when we were starting Genesis rehearsals over in London. Uh, and they, Phil and Nick were going to play one song together, both on the drum sets. And then we, I put two drum sets in a room and they tried it. And no, it's not going to work. People often talk about the greatest drummers in history. Phil himself has cited John Bonham and Keith Moon, and he he said he loved Bill Bruford, cited him as an early drumming hero. Looking back over Phil's 50-year career, I mean, I think that Phil's name should be mentioned in the company of these guys. Um, working with him firsthand, do you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a legend. You know, I, when I say, say I worked for Phil Collins, it just, wow, you know. And some of those people, they don't, they're the ones that don't know he's a drummer, but the other ones are the ones that think he's a legend. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually chatting with a friend who is a drummer um, and we talked about Phil's work in brand X Um, as a jazz fusion drummer. My friend was saying that he can safely say that Phil's top 10 in terms of all time in the, in that genre of music, which I don't know a lot about personally. Um, and like you said, there's legions of people out there who don't even know that Phil was a drummer. I mean, let alone that, you know, that the, the different kinds of playing that he did. You know, he played differently probably and obviously in Brand X than he did in Genesis or probably even in his solo stuff. For me, it's an injustice, you know, that people don't know that he's a drummer. Yeah, I don't think he's ever played in a country album, but, but yeah, he, <laughs> he's, probably- a, he, he's a legendary drummer. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, there's in the air tonight, and there's, all, you know, there's other people. Howard Jones, he produced, and Robert Plant, and Eric Clapton, and he's people don't know that's Phil Collins playing behind playing the drums in that Eric Clapton song. They don't know, they don't care. You know, nutty. I actually did um, a little story recently about the Howard Jones thing, where uh, he that song "No One Ever Is to Blame" was actually on a Howard Jones record um, that didn't really go anywhere. That song, and he asked Phil to punch it up for him. Phil came in, and I think Hugh Padgham was with him, and the song became a monster hit. I think. I mean, anything Phil touches, you know, it, he just has that power to make something. Really yeah, he certainly he did certainly did put the punches in that song. It's great. The drumming is just it's not it's not it's not blazing fast, which I don't like anyway. It's just the groove and he's playing it hard and heavy, and it's great. It really, I mean, it made it made a huge difference if you listen to the two versions. And um, he probably Phil probably came up with the the drum machine intro you know, that's probably Phil programming that thing too. That's unbelievable. It's so cool. I, I just It's amazing how his mind must work. Do you think other musicians respect Phil's drumming? And does it matter that the general public maybe doesn't get it, that they just don't know how great he is? I don't think anybody disses him as far as a drummer, you, you know, you know, unless you're some, I don't know. I suppose there's some drummer 
out there who thinks they're the greatest. But oh, Phil Collins, yeah, that's a bunch of shit, man. But, <laughs> but it doesn't. It's not like that. Just I don't really care. Okay. I don't really care. You know, if, most most people when I tell him he, he's playing the drums, they oh man, and they pay more attention. That's you know that's why I like to play something for somebody that they most likely won't hear. One that was something that wasn't a hit for him. But listen to this song. Yeah. Uh, I actually, my next question that I had prepared for you was something that a lot of people may not know, a song. For me, one of the most magical things about his drum sound is he does a lot of fills, I think. Again, not a drummer, but when I really listen for the drums, sometimes there's so many fills. A song that I love so much, and I think the, the, the last third of it the drumming is so insane, and that's cul-de-sac. I know. Um, okay, so we'll have to we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk later if you listen to it. It's just insane drumming. And on YouTube, um, some guy because I don't think Phil ever played it live. Some guy actually mimics. Well, he does it. He plays the whole song, and and the camera's behind him, so you can see him playing on the kit. And he, and um, it's crazy cool. It's yeah. So we'll, what video is this? Is this a cul-de-sac? The song cul-de-sac. <laughs> Hell the sap, yeah. It's an amazing song. So we'll have to talk later. Um uh, after you listen to it and you have to uh, let me know because it's um it's amazing. Um, but does he do a lot of fill? I mean, is that what makes some of his sound is the number of fills that he does, or no, he's always you know, he's playing the beat and then he'll throw in whatever fits and just like an afterthought. I don't want to put that over there. Uh, yeah, it's just but, but some so much on the other hand, it's totally deliberate and part of the song like uh oh i don't know well in the air tonight of course yeah and easy lover easy lover is another one and this is studio those are all great songs the easy lover i always thought had so many awesome fills in it and it started out just you know you hear the drums when that song starts you know it's phil collins you just know well that was when ricky lost and studied with us we were over in chitting falls rehearsing and I think it was Phil's first day in rehearsal and the band maybe had been rehearsing for a day or something. But anyway, they went through Easy Lover with, with Ricky Lawson playing drums. And uh, Phil sat down, Phil sat down and said, we're going to do it again. This is more or less, this is how it's supposed to be played. <laughs> so Phil, Phil sat down his kit and they did the whole song over it. Ricky's just sitting there. His jaw was boom. <laughs> And that's how it was, you know. And it's, there's a video of it somewhere on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Of of them of them doing that. Of Phil of that day of Phil playing Easy Lover, uh-huh. and da, 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 and everybody cheers. And the, you know, those were great days back when we we'd stay at the farm, the 500 year old farmhouse, and we all we'd work on equipment at the farm. That's where the studio was, and we'd drive in the chitting fold and rehearsed at the Chittingfold Ex-Servicemen's Club, which the rehearsal room's like a grade school gymnasium. And we had to move the, all the gear out on this night, which was mother and, mothers and toddlers, some function there. And then there was, a, there was also the meat raffle night, which we had to move it out. <laughs> but it was great time. It was, we, we, the band would rehearse till six o'clock and they'd leave, they'd leave bang bang on six o'clock and we'd go out to the bar and have a good beer, have a beer and come back and work back there, whatever we need to do. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. 
Did I heard um, one of the, I think it was the songbook documentary that it's a Genesis documentary. Phil said that um, one of the, um, the crew actually lived in the house on that property. Um, I don't know if that was before your time or is that not true? No, that was a, a guitar tech, Dale Newman. He used to work. He used, he was a guitar tech before I, he might've been around with, with Duke and all that old stuff, uh-huh. but uh, he couldn't do it anymore for whatever reason. So he was like the caretaker of the house. He'd go into town when when we were staying at the farm. He'd he'd show up every he'd stay there. But well, at the time he is married with a wife and kids, so he was he had a house somewhere. Yeah. But he'd be at the farm all day, and he more or less lived there. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. That's really- he'd, he'd, he'd bring in the newspaper from the village every morning, and and have our breakfast waiting uh, when we walked in, and, and the place is haunted. Is it for real? Yeah. Yeah, there was a the the caretaker out there. His name was Les, I think it was, or Len. But he was staying there with his wife one night in the house, and so suddenly in the middle of the night, something grabbed his wife by the hair and pulled her pulled her bolt bolt upright in the bed. And yeah, and uh, I can't remember what the reaction. I imagine they got the hell out of there, but but uh, it's. Supposed to be, you know, there's a the nuns walk was another. There's a livery stable, or not livery stable, a stable there. Some people say you, you can see nuns walking down this way. And I was staying there by myself one weekend. It was rainy and windy, and I was all by myself. And I was, uh, what was I doing? Oh, I was out in the studio, and I decided to go to bed. So I went into the house, and the, this 500 year old house, and I'm laying there, and I'm I'm here, boom, thud, thud. And I got my big flashlight and I went, I checked every closet, every room, and nothing. So I went out and slept in the studio and slept with the dogs. <laughs> but yeah, I believe it's haunted. Yeah. Wow. That is so, that is amazing. All right. So when you guys were, um, when you do, when the guy would bring the paper and, and you were with all the British guys, did you learn to like beans on toast? Because my understanding that was a crew favorite for breakfast. Well, I, I I was introduced to beans for breakfast over there, definitely. I, I, not necessarily on toast, but I was introduced to Indian food by those guys, which I love now. And we'd uh, we'd go into uh, oh, there was this woman they they'd call her name was Dot, and she talked like this, and she was she was quite old. You drove this old black car, and she'd go down to the Indian restaurant in Hazel, Hazelmere. And pick us up whatever we wanted, and then we'd actually drive back to the farm. And here you go, here you go, boys. So yeah, she's probably gone by now. There are a couple, you know, there are more than a few characters from those days who aren't with us anymore. Yeah, yeah. Carol, Carol, uh, who used to, who used to cook us breakfast again. She'd be she'd be cooking us breakfast with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And she'd she'd do our laundry though. Yeah, she'd do our laundry. And then there was uh, the local characters from the the pub. There's about four or five of them that are gone now. You know, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty colorful. Sounds really. like really good memories, right? Yeah. That's like- so, so, this whole Genesis Phil thing has been the best time of my life. Met some great people. Yeah. I'll, bet. I'll bet. And now it's over. Well, now uh, I, probably I probably won't get back to Europe or England again. Now, who knows what? It, unless. Somebody dies over there. So, 
Right, right, right. Let's, we don't we don't want that for a long time. Anybody that you know, anyway. <laughs> yeah, let's hope that I die first so I don't have to spend the money to fly over there. <laughs> <laughs> you are too silly. <laughs> you talked a little bit ago about um, In the Air Tonight. It's an iconic song, I think, and it changed music, in my opinion. Um, Phil worked with Hugh Padgham, who's an engineer, and they created the most famous drum break, I think, in the world. Um, and it's referred to as a gated drum sound. So here's that was used the, the sound of the processing was used or worked with on um, somebody else's might have yeah. been Peter's thing. Peter's, yeah, yeah. It was, I think it's uh, the song Intruder on yeah. it was Peter's third album. I think the song, you know, kind of defines an era of music. And my question for you is, and it seemed to become really pr- highly produced in a really cool way. And the drums sounded different. Did you have anything to do with that? No, I saw out front. Ever since what ninety six or whatever it was, we've been using Michelle Collins from Paris. When when Phil well, I had nothing to do with the actual sound of it, no. But, the production, uh, right? No, yeah, I just, I just, I just tune the drums and they do what they do to them. Because he didn't, he didn't have any triggers on. Phil didn't have any triggers on the, the only song that Phil played drum triggers on was uh, what's the name of it? Home by the Sea. Oh. Well, that's interesting. He, he could, you know, they used drum triggers on Invisible Touch and quite a few songs, but not overbearingly so, just to augment the acoustic sounds. This is a question I have later, but I'm going to ask it now. In what I ever first saw was on the 87 tour, that Invisible Touch tour, those octagon drum pads that are, is that just electronic drums? What is the story with those? Like the octopad? Are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. Oh, it's a, that's just, it, it uh, you can trigger sounds from another sound source by a MIDI, or it's also got its own bank of internal sounds, percussion sounds, drum sounds. And now they have another company has a version of that. Probably Octopad does too. Oh, Roland, yeah. Yeah, of course they do. But you can you can uh, load your own sounds into that unit. You know, so I saw Phil Clark or whatever. I saw him playing it on the song called The Brazilian. And yeah. uh, I just didn't. I just didn't know what the difference. Why would he use that versus the regular kit? It's just producing a different kind of sound that he wanted. Yeah, you can't get certain sounds out of a, just a drum set unless you do trigger something else or augment it or whatever. So yeah, they use some, some of the samples they use on these songs. They're they're blended with the actual live drum sounds mm. when we play live. Oh, so maybe the Brazilian. Back- that was the case there. there. He was using octopads, and there was some. Yeah, without no, I'm not familiar with the song, but uh, I'd have to hear it to realize what what he was doing. Yeah. You saw him playing it. It's... Yeah, it's um during the Wembley uh, show um, that they they filmed, and um, it's an all instrumental song, um, Genesis song, and um, we'll have to okay, okay. So we have to we we have so much follow up, you and I. <laughs> we'll talk about but talking about the drum triggers. Um, Ricky had triggers on his clothing. I always thought that was so strange. I didn't quite understand. It was just part of, what was it, the visual effect of him playing that way? Like, why, what was that? I all? guess, well, they wanted to start the night off with the drum, or the drum solo, and Phil was pushed out. He's opened it up with what we call the junk kit, the trash kit. Right. Which was little tiny drums, actual drums, but they had a, what looked like a pile of trash surrounding them. Yeah. And he never, I don't think, no, Phil didn't use triggers on them. Any any weirdness or difference in what the drums sound like and what what the audience heard was fun of house. But um, 
the only thing I had I came up with that drum set was I was the one who suggested we use rubber de- rubber pigeon decoys to to hide the microphones. Oh, cool! Yeah, That's we didn't. Great. They they wound up putting the microphones inside the drums, but we still kept the pigeons. <laughs> That's cool. That's really neat. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, that was it. Brad was talking about how his keyboard rig was completely like it looked like trash cans, and I'm not sure he was particularly fond of. That. Yeah, it's that same tour, and and the, you know his drum his keyboards were had the look of a they had a facade or face or, or to look like a piece of driftwood or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was that was interesting. There was um, one. There was, there was one night on that tour, and and I think we were in. Puerto Rico, we had gotten into the place really late because of a customs screw up in Santiago, Chile or something. So the show didn't start till 11 o'clock at night. And there's already a couple of people who had dropped from sunstroke during the day. Jesus. And I was sitting behind uh, the facade behind Brad Cole. It was me and Justin Kruer, keyboard tech. And I was sitting there watching Phil. He's out there doing this or that and i just got that taste in my mouth <laughs> i had to throw up so i just i just threw up right there on the floor i took a stage towel and wiped it up while i'm watching phil <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's it hell of high water the show goes on unbelievable oh yeah. my god yeah oh, I've, I've, we've all had injury there's been i i'm famous for getting injured in some way on every tour is that that's your that's your claim to fame? Pretty much, and on that uh, 2007 tour, in someplace, and oh, I can't remember where, but I I I did like uh, three three horizontal flips as I was falling off the drum riser, and I landed flat on my back, and right away there were about eight or ten people right over it. Don't move, don't move, and I just held my head up. And I'm all right. So I did the show, got back, and we went to the bus and carried on. The next morning, I woke up and I couldn't move. Oh, and I, by the time I walked into the the venue, the stadium, I was crying because it hurt so bad. Oh. And I went to the doctor, and he said, "Well, if you would have gone this way or that way with this injury, you'd be dead." But he gave me some pain drops, and it was in German, so I couldn't read them. All I saw was twelve. So I think you're supposed to take 12 over the course of a day or something or with water. So I just did 12, 12 drops in my mouth. And I, I didn't feel any pain for about a week after that. <laughs> Could you talk? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, as far as I know. <laughs> my God, that's crazy. I love it. Um, so standout memories for me on, on live tours. The 2004 show that opened with that epic long drum solo from Phil was a thrill. I, I'm so grateful that I got to see that show and see Phil drum when he was still, you know, able to really do it. And then on the Not Dead Yet tour, I thought it was so cool when Luis and and Nick came out front and, and they were drumming with Phil using his hands on well, that. Well, I think that was, no, that was Richie. Richie Garcia came in and he was the one who... Didn't, I don't think I don't think Luis did it, did he? You know, I don't know for sure. So um, yeah, I go Luis, with what you're when saying. The, when Richie came in to uh, take over for Luis for whatever reason, uh, 
he was the one who said, let's, let's take this, the cones down here. We'll do this. And okay. Yeah, okay. So I'm pretty sure. I don't think we did that with Luis. Luis just stayed up behind his kit and played percussion. Okay. Thank you for telling me that. So, but I thought it was neat, Brad, to see, um, to see Phil still flexing that rhythm muscle, you know, that was in him from when he was three. Well, Um, just trying to get him to play something, you know, he, he could tell that he, was missing playing because he'd sit and watch Nicola intently while he was playing. Right. Yeah. So it was, what was the name of the, um, the piece of equipment that he was playing um, at that time? Um, uh, they were all playing cajones. Oh. Um, Phil was playing some abbreviated laptop version of a cajon. It's just a wooden, you know, beatbox, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I thought they were jamming. I thought it was really pretty cool. <laughs> Oh, they had they had it all worked out. So we'll do this and we'll do that. You do this for a while, then I'll do this for a while. Then we'll all do this and that. Then you know they've, they've got to figure out the ending for it. Otherwise, it's just confusion. Yeah, yeah, but it was neat. I, I was happy to see see Phil out doing. It. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, piece of Phil's drumming? A, a favorite thing that you think? Wow, that's amazing. His work on or. I like a song called "I Don't Want to Know." I think it, I think that's "I Don't Want to Know." Daryl wrote it. Um, I don't want to know. Check it out. It's a great song. I don't surprise it didn't make number one. It's probably a B-side. It's probably a B-side to something. It might be on No Jacket Required. I know he was predatory. I think so. I think it is. Songs on there. Yeah. Um, I don't want to know. Well, but so you love that. You love the drumming in that. Yeah. It's just, it's just a great pop song. You know, it's you know, the drumming's all, on all this stuff. It's, it's Phil. There's not something out He's, no. I can't think of anything in particular that I, that stands out that I like. You know, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't have started working for him if I wasn't a fan. Mm-hmm. Same with Prince. Right. I, would, I, I worked for well, about eight months with George Benson too, but and it was all right. Yeah. Then I came back and we did the Purple Rain tour. Holy cow! <laughs> Is that was that sort of one of those things that. Did you know how amazing it was while it was happening? First, first night of the tour was in Detroit, and I think it was Joe Louis Arena, and the first song, "Let's Go Crazy," and the audience was like it was the Beatles. It was just just a white noise scream, you know. And See? then, then we, even the bands looking at, oh, holy shit, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't realize it was going to be as nuts as it was. The circus comes to town, but I signed it. But I signed a non-disclosure. I signed at least four of them. I think a non-disclosure agreement. I can't tell the stories. I right. could. One day, one day yeah. you'll you'll have to write a book. Yeah, I'll tell you the story before I go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. document it. One more story. Come and get me. <laughs> Oh my God. Now you said you're a fan of Phil's. Um, could you play all the songs say like on the not dead yet tour, those, those songs, could you play those today? If I asked you to, could you do it? I mean, is it in your brain like that? Probably. We are with, uh, I played with, uh, I was called by a, a, a Prince tribute act a couple of years ago. I played every, every Thursday or something downtown. And, uh, Keyboard player was a big Prince fan. He played a couple of these tribute or jams or whatever. 
And he called me and said, see, you want to play with, we need a drummer for one night. And so I, they played the whole Purple Rain album. And I I never rehearsed it with anybody. I never played it before. And they did the whole album with, with the segues and everything in between songs, which I didn't know they could do. I thought they just, so I, I learned quickly. No, okay, are we doing that? Okay. But I played the whole album, note for wow. note, and I'd never done it before, and it was great. Wow. Well, and like, could... still, it all, it all goes in here, and there's... Yeah, I could probably I could play the play the yeah. song, play the set. Did you ever have to live? Did did Ricky or or Chester ever have an injury or or were they ill where you had to pinch hit ever live? No, with Prince I had to pinch hit, jump in because Sheila E injured her shoulder some way, and Prince wanted to teach the band some segue at soundcheck that day. So Sheila said, Well, let Brad play the drums. All the band's playing, they can learn it. I can learn it while he's playing it. Da, da, da. So we did that. And I'm at the end of the song, and I'm doing the big symbols up here. And, and then I, I I did the down, but I, I tried to end it like a normal drummer would. And nobody stopped and until Prince stopped. He said, Brad, Brad, when you get your own band, you can stop the song. So. In your many years with Phil, what's the craziest thing you ever saw a fan maybe do or ask for, or, you know, that kind of thing, if you can think of well, it. It's in one of his, oh, it's in one of his videos, Susudio from Live and Loose in Paris. He's down on the floor shaking hands and the crowd singing and such. And, and somebody tries to steal his ring. I can, I can see it. I can see them grab his ring and he, he pulls it away. He sends it and pulls it away. But his wedding quite, ring? What? His wedding ring? Yeah. Whatever ring, whatever rings on the left hand over here, is is the guy was def, definitely after the ring. He grabbed it and was going like that, and and felt. That is horrible! Wow. Yeah, the studio on the live and loose in Paris at the end of the song. You'll you'll see it. Who would do? I know. I know. I don't know what else has ever seen him do. Nothing. I don't know. I can't think of anything right now offhand. That's too too weird. Yeah, I was I was asking Brad, and you know, I figured, you know, what Brad say? Well, he said that it was pretty tame. That by the time you know he joined in 1990 as well, I expected you know he would say, "Oh, there's all sorts of girls that would flash or something." Back in the 90s, it was different. Now, now it's mainly more mature folks coming to see, <laughs> yeah, like like us, you and me. Sure. It was Genesis. It looks there's all these. 65 70 year old people out there playing their air guitars and air drums right. these old folks it was funny you know, I'm, I'm one of them you know well, I don't me too i'm kind of sad that now this is over not only will we not see that no see the band anymore but it's all the people surrounding the band their families and their daughters you know jolie and and uh what's the other one lily and Simon. Oh, and Lily and Simon. Yeah, and- Julie and Lily and Simon. And we never saw Simon much, but but, but Nicholas and, and the family, the wives and the promoters and the bus drivers. It's all over for me now, as far as I know. Yeah, it's hard. It's it's got to be hard. It's a, probably a, a little bit of sense of loss and a little loneliness, right? A little bit after looking back yeah. all these years. I miss the traveling already, although, yeah, traveling wasn't as fun as it used to be. You back in the nineties when there were hit records to tour with, we'd, we'd go into cities usually anywhere from three to five days with a day off in the middle of it. 
mm-hmm. and now it's just bang, bang, bang. Let's get it over with, and we don't want people to get sick, and we have to come back and do it again. And uh. it's different. It's different. I was when Brad Cole and I were visiting, we were talking about how the backstage scene used to be actually pretty cool. Like, well, especially oh, in the yeah. 80s. you know, people used to party in the eighties, but now backstage just sucks. It's boring, and nothing goes on. You know, yeah, back in the back in the eighties again, we'd go, we'd you know say there's four or five of us guys go out to a club, go out to the TGI Fridays some night, and uh, meet a ten or twelve girls. And you girls want to come to the show tomorrow night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what's one of your names? So you get one one person's name, Julie plus ten, and we put it on the guest list, and th- no problem. And right. now it's now you don't even want to ask for guest passes and. Aww. Because we're supposed to be in a bubble. And in fact, in Madison Square Garden, our, we lost one of our guitar texts. He had to stay behind. Yeah. Luckily, I didn't get sick. I knock on wood. I said I owe it all to chocolate milk, cigarettes, and tequila. <laughs> That's the trick. <laughs> That's all I was doing. You know, I didn't. You know, I, I was right in the middle of it. I was lucky I didn't uh, get super sick or anything. So I take every every immune supplement that I can, and I, I, anything the hottest spice I, I I think is good for keeping away sickness and stuff. Yeah, you eat, you eat some wasabi or some you know habanero pepper or you know. Did you ever eat at the restaurant in Indianapolis that Peyton Manning? Was, is famous for that being his favorite restaurant that you go there and they give you the shrimp cocktail with fresh, um, fresh horseradish. Have you ever had that? Mm-hmm. Oh, if you ever go, you got to go to Indianapolis, go to, go to the Indy 500 or something. I can't think of the name of the restaurant, but it, it's those where you eat it and your whole sinus is just it go on fire. If you ever go to Monaco, go to a place called Latage. I, I just checked it the other day. It's still there. That's the hottest restaurant I've ever eaten at. Three of us went there on the Genesis tour. Yeah, it was Genesis tour. We were playing in Nice. And um, we all ordered the same thing, I think. Something, something, Vindaloo. And after two or three bites, our lips were trembling. We were sweating. And the fan overhead was going. And the window was open. The air conditioning was on. We were dumping the sugar in there into <laughs> our hand. Yeah. We, all of us were only able to eat maybe five spoonfuls of the stuff. And the... That's the hottest I've ever had. And the second hottest I've ever had was at a place down the road in Nice when I was there with Prince. And I said, make it like fire. <laughs> so they had delivered my meal and the, the wait staff is standing over in the side of the room just waiting for me to melt. You know? Could you eat it? Yeah. You did. That's awesome. Yeah. What, what type of cuisine was it? Like Indian food? Yeah, Indian food. The, the crew and, and the band and, and Phil and everybody, did you guys eat together? Was that kind of a thing? You know, with Genesis, with Genesis uh, well, I guess with Phil's band too, the band would get their meals in the in the in their dressing rooms. Uh-huh. Unless they wanted to come down and sit with us, which Phil's band was more likely to do with anybody. But, uh, you know, they usually eat, and we just eat whenever we have time. Yeah, right, because you guys are going... Like, well, with, uh, with Genesis, when I've only got one drum set, I usually have time for dinner. But on Phil's solo tour, where he's got, I got to set up two drum sets and a percussion and this and that. Yeah, I usually had to work right through supper and, you know, deal with it later. 
When you, when you had shows that were back to back, um, you'd load in, you'd have the show. Would you try to catch a nap then maybe even during the show? Because then do you have to load out and get the trucks loaded and, and then get to the next city? How, how hard? We, 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 we do it. We load in, we do, we set the gear up, we do the show and we tear tear stuff down. Then we, put all cases push into the truck and then we've got stage hands they load the truck for the most part and then we get in the bus and go to wherever we're going next and that's when you sleep yeah it's pretty much on the bus yeah yeah, yeah. when you're on tour though is it is it hard i mean do you not sleep very much when you've got back-to-backs like that we didn't used to we didn't used to sleep at all but uh those days are gone but, uh, <laughs> uh, now we yeah now it's you know the the bus traveling by bus, especially U.S. buses, is my one of my favorite parts about touring. Because yeah. you get in that in your bunk, it's just like the boom, just been rocked to sleep. And, yeah, yeah, know. yeah. Those little those little things that like the bunks and they have the curtains. Those. Yeah, the bunks, and we most of them nowadays have a, a your own uh, air conditioning and maybe a video player in there too. Oh wow! And yeah, they're. I'm quite comfortable on the box. It shared a video of you guys all on, on the plane. Um, one of the planes on, on one of the field tours and the planes look deluxe. How, how is it to travel like that? That's pretty cool, right? I just wrote on one or two of the, well, you know, a few of their private planes. Yeah. They're, they're nice planes. Definitely. On the, the both sides tour when we were doing, when we did the far side, which we, which started in South Africa, and I think we flew to Hong Kong on that flight, but that was where we picked up our the, our personal private plane, which was an old 707, one with the four engines inside. All the seats were leather seats, and you got on the plane on the in the runway, and I'd like a glass of Bailey's, please. So they give you a, a tumbler of Bailey's about that big, and then we'd, we'd be drinking and smoking on the. You know, it's our plan. Get out. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's so fun. That's fun. I see behind you, Brad, I see a couple cool things. So I want to ask you about, but, but what do you, do you have like a bunch of old drumsticks? Do you have a bunch of old tambourines? And do you keep those things because they're special mementos? You remember them? Or do you not keep that kind of stuff? Well, I've got several tambourines. They're signed by Phil for this tour, that tour, and some little notes that he's written to me and or other everybody. Mm-hmm. And I've got uh, gold and platinum records from Phil. Nah, yeah, from Phil and from Prince. Uh-huh. And what else do I have? Just dumb stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but you keep it. You know, um, Brad Cole said- Yeah, it's getting to the point now. It's like I, I told you before, that yeah. my place is such a mess right now because it's all come home. Uh, everything is i finally have to deal with it all right so right. i'm wondering well i can throw this away i guess because i'm not going to get grandkids to show it to her something like that you know <laughs> yeah no don't throw it away it's all yeah. special so those passes yeah. i know you said you're you've got a whole bunch of more but i see from the uh i see a pass from what tour is that where he's doing it he's hitchhiking that's that pass is cool so are all those your genesis and phil passes yeah, yeah. Oh, that's from the first Final Farewell tour. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are neat. Those are amazing. Okay, let me get a tambourine. It's right in the room. I'll show you how I used to play it. Okay. This is this is how they usually wind up. 
Oh, no way. <laughs> and I, was just, I was just fish print in there. That's cool. That's, yeah. You want to hold it up to the camera, Brad? And then um, I'll make sure people see it. That's cool. Wow. And he wrote a whole book to you there. That's so cool. I love um, it. That's amazing. You played, um, as you know, Brad, I got to meet you for the first time on the 26th after that Genesis show when Phil gave me his tambourine. And I don't know that Phil would often give audience members things first like First time I've seen him do that. Yeah, I felt really lucky. And it's usually me, they're hounding to give me a tambourine, give me a guitar, give me some drumsticks. And I got to give you one. Then I got to give 5,000 people this and that. Exactly. Nobody's yeah. gonna run up to here. Oh, give me one. Yeah. Right. Right. No. Exactly. I was thrilled, and I knew it was the last Genesis show, and I knew that he wouldn't play it anymore. Um, you know, after after um, I know what I. Like. I had already promised it to our carpenter. I know. I know. When I saw you, I and said, "That's the first time that he's given given one away, and it's the one time that I said, yeah, you can go up, just go up and grab it.'" I know. I felt bad. I felt bad. Um, yeah, and, and actually, I think that guy had, I think it was, it might have been Chris, and he he yes. commented, that's, that's my tambourine on Facebook, and I was like, oh, God. No, but, no. I was um, there when he did that. Yeah, that. Hey, that's my tambourine. And... <laughs> yeah, but it was cool. So when, when I got to hang out with you that night, um, you actually, you took the tambourine, and you showed me a bunch of cool stuff, you know, how you modify it with the screws and everything, but you played it for me, and you showed me how loud a tambourine could be and i thought that was so cool oh, um, he hit, yeah he he hits it like a with his fists as far as high as he can damn yeah and i've got, I've got a, just like a drum head i've got to stretch his tambourine heads too before he plays them or else he'll go he'll put his fists through it in the first there you go you know send it skidding back along the floor and here's another one yeah. and i finally figured out how that i've got it i had to stretch the head because i didn't realize he was doing that and I also had to put the screws in to help help the handle stay on so he wouldn't get staples in his hand. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell people that I, I show no one's allowed to touch the tambourine. Only you have touched it since Phil gave it to me. <laughs> well, yeah, then the person it fell under the stage. The lady next to me tried to get it. And uh, what, he handed it to you and you dropped it or what? So he he threw it to me and this lady next to me tried to get it. So then I think nobody was ready. Nobody knew, you know, so Andy Simpson was running over, like, what's he have this look of panic on his face? And the lady tried to get it. So it knocked it out of my hand and it rolled under the stage. So Andy said, he looked at me, he said, I'll, I'll come back, you know, and, and anyway, so I got it after the show. No, that's good. Andy's good. Yeah. 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 It was, it was nice, but um, it was really exciting. People sent me little video clips, you know, people that were in the audience of Phil, you know, throwing it. It was exciting, but uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. So thank you. It was so fun meeting you that night. And, and uh, I did feel bad for poor Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just a uh, coincidence that, like I say, I just, first time I said to somebody, yeah, just go up and grab it. We're done. And I, then he Phil gave it away. Phil doesn't usually do that. He, yeah. he never gives drumsticks away or anything like that. No, no. So yeah, I was I was on cloud nine for uh, for about four months. I think <laughs> I I am I still am a little bit. It's really. Did you have it framed? Oh yeah, I definitely will. I definitely will. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I don't, I don't expect that I'll have a chance. I'd love to have Phil sign it one day, but I probably won't have that chance, but. Uh, yeah. Well, we should probably get another tambourine signed for Chris Oregon too, if we get that chance. <laughs> That's right. Chris, Chris is out with Lady Gaga now. Oh, is he really? Yeah. Is that, he's with Lady Gaga. Is that what you said? Yeah. He's worked for her. I think she, since she first started touring. Wow. He's a, I think he's the production manager or stage back then or what he is. Wow. That's pretty cool. She's, she's amazing. Um, yeah. You know, Brad, I wanted to ask you a couple, couple more things before we finish up. Um, I've heard that Phil's a really good gift giver or Phil and, and Tony, you know, the company um, is a good, they're good gift givers to you guys after the tours. And, and I've heard about some cool things like a little beautiful music box did you receive something um, that you felt was really special that you really liked? Yeah, that, that music box, it's, it's very beautiful. I saw a wooden box and it plays whatever. And that was nice. That was very nice. And, Phil, and then, you know, I feel like I'm just looking at a little note that Phil sent, sent to me because on one tour, I had, we had worked our butt off the night before. And I think he overheard me bitching about something. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he sent me a note and apologized for it. Oh, and you still have that, yeah? yeah? Yeah, I got little stuff like that. You know, I got the, I got the, a Prince pass from my, from my first con- first Prince tour controversy. Um, all the bands signed it, and all the crew signed it. I still got that. Wow! So I, and, and Prince signed it, you know. And wow. he didn't. I don't think he usually did that with, you know, the, with the whole band. I'm wondering what else I've got. You know, I've just got stuff all over the place. And that. Yeah. No. Okay. No, you go ahead, Brett. Sorry. Oh, I can't. I'm just looking. What else can I think about here? Yeah. Every place I look, there's something I got on tour, or That's something, so something because of it. That is so neat. The the caricature behind you, I see in the lower right hand corner, is Phil, and then who? There's the some of the backing singers. Um, is that Dan Quinnell and Harry Kim and uh, and there's Daryl and there's Amy and there's Brad and there's Ricky Lawson. And Arnold Wolfolk. Oh. Arnold Wolfolk is in the middle up there. And then Nathan East is below him. Arnold. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's neat. And you guys, they somebody did that and you guys all got a copy? Yeah. And then we've got another one over on the other side with, with uh, all the crew. That's neat. That's really special. That's something not everybody has, you know? It's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, the, we got we got a double platinum uh, CD on our last show with Genesis. I think it was that was another thing we had to wonder how we're get, how am I going to get this home? we got another double platinum album, another gold out al- double platinum double gold album from Phil from the Sirius tour, which was about four feet high and about a foot and a half wide. And we had to lug those things home in the airline too, but that was before. I, Everything got picky and stupid. And, right. you know, no, you can't bring that on here. You got, well, you got to leave it behind. Oh, please. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite thing about having worked with Phil? Something specific or general, you know, that you could say? Uh, wow. Just all the people I met. Just uh, the people I met, uh, the English vibe. I like that. You know, to a point, when I get used to it, I'm fine. But like when we just went over there again with Genesis, I, I had forgotten a lot of things about England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just really aggravating or something but <laughs> the lack of ice 
No, then no, that doesn't. We usually have enough ice. I can't think. They don't. Uh, then they've got plenty of Mexican restaurants over there now. They didn't used to have those. Yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, I like it over. And I miss the old staying in the farm and rehearsing and chitting for old days. Those are great. Yeah. Gary Gary Brookwood came came by studio one day when we were working there with a jar of pickled eggs that he had made, and uh, David Crosby came through. He was staying there for a while, and we were rehearsing. I talked to him one night. And, you know, <laughs> did you ever you you didn't you weren't with Phil when he toured with like Clapton or Plant? That was prior to you joining, so you yeah. didn't get to do. But you did do you know the Little Dream shows. You you did you know when Nick came. Did you do anything else like like that? Any special events, for example, like the Jubilee when Phil did that? He was the band leader, I think, in two thousand two. I didn't do that. We were doing another gig and. And uh, I can't remember. We were someplace in England. And uh, so I didn't do that. Steve Jones went and did that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, well, we did uh, the Tarzan and, and the Brother Bear stuff, the premiere shows yeah. where we'd go up and do a, a premiere in Tokyo for two weeks and, and, or New York. We did broad, the Broadway premiere there. Um. Brad, do you ever have a chance to communicate with Phil since since March? Have you have you checked in on him, or do you guys email or anything? No, yeah, yeah. I've only talked to maybe two people. Uh, yeah, two or three people from the tour since then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of them are off doing something else, and uh, Phil will call me if he needs me, or somebody will. Yeah. And if somebody needs me, they got my number. Otherwise. Yeah, and you'll be ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's well, cool. you know, probably kept me alive and healthy as much as I has has been. You know. Yeah, because you look, you do look younger than you are. I, you, I actually know you and I talked about how old you are. I don't know if you share it publicly, but you look a lot younger. And I think I wonder if it's because you did a job that you loved for so many years, and, and you know. Well, yeah, and all the beer I drank and all the other things I've consumed. but yeah if you have a smile on your face you're going to be healthy and i was i had a smile on my face for 30 years yeah yeah you did you still do there were there are times and uh, everybody will say well you don't smile all the time Yeah. (laughs) yeah 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 No, you do. You're, you're awesome. You're a nice, you're a nice person. You know, if somebody asked me what, what's the best thing about, you know, getting to talk to people like Brad Marsh, Brad Cole, Leland, the, the common denominator is, is that you're all genuine people. You're not full of, you know what, and, um, and you're nice, you know, and I think you guys wouldn't have lasted with Phil all those years if you weren't, you know, if you weren't. Yeah, if you don't fit in the, if you don't, if the chemistry is not right, you're gone. And like, I think I told you before, back in my, my back in the uh, 70s, you know, I'd see Leland and other people on album covers. Mm-hmm. Never did I believe that I, now I've been a friend of his for 32 years and all the other people. The Phil Collins, you know. Oh, Yeah. I get a Christmas card every year. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 amazing. And the, even though as legendary as they are, you know, you realize that they're just people, just like you and just like me. And um, you know, and that that's I think that's really something special when you get to know somebody like Leland, right? I mean, he's just Phil was a, 
Joe was a big model railroad freak too. He had a, he built a big model railroad as, in his old house in in Surrey, which I, when the time came after his divorce, I went over there with Pud and tore down the old train set in his basement. There was 40, 50 boxes of stuff or something. And, and then we put that in the truck and it all went down to Switzerland. And I drove at breakneck speed down to Switzerland with Pud. And we started, that was where that whole thing started when he started living there. And Wow. And did you have to put the train then? you built No, the- he, built, he built a whole new thing. But he had, you know, they just delivered the boxes to someplace and then maybe to his house. And then uh, he built a new place in his, when he, uh, yeah, when he moved to, uh, not after he had Jackie Stewart's old place, he had that during the, his marriage. And then he moved into a different place and he built another railroad there. That's so but, cool. But then he had to tear it out and make room for his Alamo stuff. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that is an, an amazing story. A lot of people, again, people don't know he's a drummer. People don't know that he's probably, well, at least was. What's his, yeah, what's his English, English Pratt doing with Alamo stuff? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. He, you know, that it's, uh, yeah, uh, that's an amazing thing. And he wrote a book um, about that. And he's a subject matter expert. It's very, very interesting uh, stuff. The book? The book? Yeah. Did you read it? A little bit of it. I, it's, yeah, it's I, a, I have it. I got it. Yeah, it's a lot of information. I started to read it, and it was pretty interesting, actually. Um, but it's it's big and heavy and a lot. <laughs> so yeah, someday I'll finish it. You know, I always say that, and I never do, though. You know, <laughs> is it a picture book. It's um, has photos of the different artifacts, um, huh. and but lots of sto- like stories about it. You know, yeah, um, he had I saw he had a, all these display cases made over his home in Switzerland, and. and Santa Ana's snuff box and all this stuff is really, really cool, you know. And somebody's saber, you know. Really, yeah. Really cool stuff. But how, you know, how did he wind up doing it? That's another thing. I know it's it's amazing. There, um, apparently he loved the movie Davy Crockett, and and I I've, I've told this story now twice in my interviews. But when he was six, he did a performance in a talent show, and he was singing the song Davy Crockett. And he had a little cowboy suit on and he turned and stopped the orchestra. There was live music. And he told them they were singing in the wrong key as a six-year-old, which, oh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, it's a great story. His sister actually tells uh-huh. the story and uh, I mean, it's just great. It, it shows his, you know, his musical gift, his ability, yeah. even at age six, which is fantastic. But um, I think that's where the love of Davy Crockett and the Alamo and, and all of that Western stuff was born when he was a little kid, you know? Right. That's where, yeah, we were all watching Davy Crockett back then. There was this television series. Do, are you old enough to remember that? I was born in 69, so probably not. Yeah, no, I don't right. remember. There was a Davy Crockett uh, TV series with Fess Parker was Davy Crockett. Or was that Daniel Boone? Uh, Daniel Boone. Yeah, there was oh. another one. There was a couple. There's all these cowboy shows, Bonanza and stuff when I was growing up. There's I a Davy Crockett one. There's a Daniel Boone one. There was a, yeah. Yeah, I remember Bonanza. I I, I like that show. That was Every fun. Sunday night. Yeah. Set yeah. the Valley down. Ed Sullivan show and Bonanza. That was it. <laughs> yeah, those are those are the old days for sure. I forgot yeah. to I forgot to, we didn't talk about the, the documentary where you get all pissed off with the drum stools. <laughs> I forgot to ask you about that. But oh, is, well, you want to ask? Well, let's get it out of the way. 
I know it's something that you get asked about all the time. Tell me a little bit about the documentary film When in Rome um, and the time you had to go with Danny G, uh, Phil's assistant, to go and buy a bunch of bar stools. Um, <laughs> Phil got it in his head that he and Chester should do the beginning of their drum duet right on the bar stools, I think. And uh, <laughs> you were not happy that day. Tell well, me about that, it. Those guys playing on bar stools, they always do the drum duet in their show. And how they put the drum duet together is usually done back at the hotel on bar stools in the hotel room. Yeah, yeah. And they had in mind, like you say, to do it live this time. So I had, I was supposed to go out and pick out a couple of drum stools and or bar stools. And I had things to do back in rehearsal, but it was, it's only going to take half an hour. And we didn't find a place for an hour. And the, uh, the manager of the Ikea didn't speak a word of English and she didn't want to. And uh, I was trying to converse with her, whatever. And I, most of my conversation was beeped out. Beep. You know, what is this beep? You know, seriously, I won't watch it. I've only watched about two minutes of it. I said, I don't want it. But uh, anyway, a week or so later, the band gets a rough cut of the whole documentary. And Tony Smith finds me in the in catering. He said, so you're in the documentary. Oh, God. And so I went to the dressing room and found the three guys here and there. I said, hey, guys, I'm, I, I I, haven't seen it yet, but I'm really sorry. I said, no, no, you're the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> it is the funniest. And I think the guy. But who- somebody else, but, but some, not long after that was released, some fan. I saw a comment. Uh, Who's this old hippie about cussing and shit? The, the, like I say, no matter what I do, wherever I do it, I must be doing something right because I'm still there. You absolutely are. I love it. Well, Brad, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you wanted to say or, no. or did we cover it at all? No, it's, it's you covered most of it. I mean, I could go on about other things, but you've covered most of it. That's good. Um, Thank you very much. Now I've got to put my condo back together again. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for for doing this and spending time with me. And um, um, I will I will cherish our our time. And I I hope that um, whatever you end up doing, that you you keep smiling. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I know you had a story to tell me about something that you did for Phil that has to do with his tea. I'm, I'm dying to hear about it. Well, when I joined the family in 1990. Phil was getting a special tea made for him by Louie Louie, uh, the trombone player. And it was full of all kinds of weird herbs and stuff. And then Louie left and uh, it fell upon me to make the tea. So I just, I made it up. So I, I buy it. Uh, you want that recipe? This is for, a, if you want to make a picture of the stuff, which I did, you may take a, a good handful of red clover blossoms dried and then uh, a good sized pinch of peppermint leaves dried and half a lemon half a bottle half a squeeze bottle of honey and uh, about five to ten slices of ginger and two pinches of cayenne pepper oh oh yeah people i had crew people coming up to me and asking for a cup of the tea because it it cured the common cold it's really good and, and would it be hot tea, Brad? Hot? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's it funny. wasn't always my favorite thing to do. Like with uh, uh, with the solo tours, I usually had two sets of drums and 
set of percussion. And the last thing I had to do was make the tea. So I didn't usually get to eat supper as such. I was, you know, doing what something or other. But then the Genesis camp comes along, and that's just one drum set. So I was happy. You know, <laughs> Genesis. I, had, I had time. That's so neat. And was the tea? Did he enjoy it because it helped keep his voice in shape? And and yeah, there were a couple, did... shows, there were a couple of shows where I'd be on over in the side of the stage, the wing, and he would uh, give me this sign like time out but it meant tea so i'd bring up a cup of tea out for him and he'd get to the show but i could tell when i heard his voice he doesn't sound well you know i started pouring <laughs> get ready <laughs> that's so cool he, that's he, also had these little, he also uh was fond of these little uh breathers uh pastilles pastilles lozenges uh black black uh black current yeah and it's also for his throat, but he uh, had to have a little tin of those down by his uh, front station on the stage and another tin back by his drum set. So he, when he went to play the drums, he could just snatch one and pop it in his mouth and carry on. Okay, that would keep the throat moist, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Just keep everything smooth and calm. That's so neat. That's, that's I love those kinds of stories, and people listening are going to just adore your recipe. I mean, it's... It's probably going to be all the rage, Brad. We're going to have. No, like, I mean, it's, a, it's a matter of taste. I know. I know what it's supposed to smell like, and I know what it's supposed to taste like. So it's. But I, I, I those are the correct proportions. You know, just a, a good handful, and then a few fingers, and you know, like that. Did it taste good? Oh yeah, it tastes. You know, when I I put all this stuff in a pitcher, and it looks like a, a pitcher full of swamp water. Just with all this, all these herbs floating around in there, it's brown. And but then I strain it into a thermos, and it's all nice. And oh, it was real good. Yeah. Oh, fun! I have to make some. Yeah. I'll do like a little video making. <laughs> I, I I don't get a cold much, but uh, it it's really good for you when you have a cold because almost everything in there is for it's good for immunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the 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 lemon and the cayenne theoretically were in there to to take the phlegm out of your throat and the rest of it was to peel your throat. That's so, so cool. Seems to work. That's so, and Louis Louis the one who came up with it? Well he came up with his own, you know, you know, it was a more exotic. I'm looking at the what? Oh he didn't explain it to me. He was just gone the next tour and well you gotta make the tea. So, <laughs> like, so I just made it up and it turned out really good. And I made it for he hasn't he hasn't been drinking it as of late or the candies he hasn't taken. So mm -hmm. but I had to make it every night, you know, and every I had to bring some with me when we did a one-off gig somewhere here or there. Yeah. Make sure you had it. That was cool. That's fun. That's it's neat to know that that was part of your job too. Well, Brad, what else do we have? To, do you have any other any nuggets of wisdom or well Phil's a, an artist of sorts. He did a couple of drawings of me, and it's just, it's nothing you're going to write home to mom about, but other than it's done by Phil Collins, there's a little picture of me and then a little box of Kleenex and a, and a picture that says Munch's Swamp Juice. That was the tea. <laughs> That's cool. And I've also got uh, his translations. In every city we used to play overseas, he'd, he'd sit down with somebody and he'd write down phonetically what he wanted to say in 
Portuguese or Italian or Norwegian or whatever. So I've still got all those too. And uh, what else I do? It, uh, that's, you know, just been little, little bits bobbed along the way. He brought his dog, Jack, Jack Russell Terrier, out in the road for a couple of times. And uh, Jack would go out on stage during the song, Wear My Hat, and run around up the ramps and everything and, and do a couple of laps. And then he figured it out and didn't care for it anymore. So he put him up there. I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> did he did he have a little hat on? Uh, I don't can't remember if we did or not. We had a hat for him, a little hat. I think it was a little Mexican hat. So I <laughs> wish there was there's probably footage of it someplace, but you know, I don't I've never seen it. I recall that in um, the rehearsal for that, there's um, a video that was done and, and Phil talks about he wants to have Jack do it. But then I, I never saw him actually on stage, you know, during a performance. So maybe there's yeah. this video. I'll have to look. Jack only did it about two or three times and that's when he got sick of it and didn't want to <laughs> run around anymore. He wasn't having it. You uh, weren't the one that had to take him out, were you? No. No, I was just in charge of the cat. The cat became kind of a good luck charm, and people, Phil, noticed, where's the cat? You know, it's, it had to be there. So I made sure. Brad, um, on the Genesis tour, they played Duchess at every show except for Chicago. And we had heard through the grapevine that there was a, a fan group that had lobbied. The idea how or why that happened and was the rumor about the fans having an influence true? You know, I remember misunderstanding was on the set list when the whole thing started in rehearsals over in England, but it, I've still got a set list or whatever somewhere. It says misunderstanding. It says U.S. only. Uh-huh. But if they only did it in Chicago, I don't really pay attention if they only did it in Chicago. I can't. That's a good song. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. So it's for whatever reason, they, they went back to Duchess the next show and uh, there was a big bunch of conversation about it in the fan community because uh, everybody wanted Duchess. But then I, I wanted this understanding and I, I went to a lot of shows on that tour, but I didn't go to Chicago. So I'm mad. <laughs> but um, yeah, Duchess, I, Duchess, in fact, it goes on and on from what from where I was sitting. I couldn't differentiate where the, where they were in the song. So I had to, um, when we went on break from rehearsal, I wrote to Michelle Collin and I said, I told him to send me a copy of the live rehearsal so I could listen to it. Just, and then I got it. Then I got the structure of the song. And there was a loop playing during that song that I started and stopped. So I had to pay attention because Nick would, usually he'd turn around and just, Give me a nod when he wanted me to stop the loop, whatever it was. There was one night in the last leg we did where I was I was watching him for the, for the signal. It, it didn't come and it didn't come. And it was right there at the precipice of where I was supposed to hit stop. And he finally, he turned around and I hit the button at the same time. I just, you know, okay. And he went, so, um, on the serious tour, I was the one in back and I would change Chester's samples that he was playing. And I changed, I, I think the song was Susudio. And then there's another song that didn't use samples. I think, yeah, I can't remember what it was, but I, uh, I changed, I changed the samples. I was, I thought I was changing it to mute and I didn't. But So when I heard the samples play, it wasn't, you know, nobody died, 
but uh, I just left I just left the samples up there. And the next day, uh, Phil went up to Chester in rehearsal and said, Chester, did you have the right samples up for that, this song? I said, that was me. I, I put up the wrong samples. I said, I thought it'd be better to leave what was playing, carry on instead of just drop that out. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, do you want me to leave that in there? Uh, no, no. Right, right, well, I can right. usually hear it, you know, just without the headphones in it. Oh, and if Mike plays something weird or something, anybody does something weird, we can. You'd know it because you're so used to hearing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what I thought was really fun um, um, when you talked about Mike is, of course, back in the day, when they would do their heads together during I Know What I Like, you know, and they would put their heads down. And then I think for at least a few shows, they kind of did, recreated it on this tour a little bit. Mike would lean down toward Phil. That was really fun. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah, know. There's a lot of things that there's a lot of things that have changed over the years. It's it's odd just to watch the old videos. Somebody shared a clip last night. You know, for three sides live and uh it was the end of a song called dodo from genesis and uh he was singing the end of it he had a drumstick in his hand he was singing and he went and started beating on chester's <laughs> cymbals and then he ran over and was playing sword play with mike and then went back and started conducting the band with this one drumstick at the end of the song you know in a 20 minute or 20 second time span he that, i mean that's yeah, who he, he was running around like a madman you know when he, was, when he was fit and younger like we all were i mean he, i can still spot him doing little hand signals or doing this or that to, you know just you know a headbutt who said oh, yeah, i People right. do that all the time, right? The fake headbutt. Yeah, you, you used the headbutt thing quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, all the time. It was funny. I always thought it was a weird thing to do. I'm like, why does he do that? <laughs> it's a that old English schoolboy thing. Oh. He's not an English schoolboy. Mike and Tony are proper English schoolboys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Phil's more the the rounder. You know, he's more the. Right. He was more the, yeah, kind of every, every guy. Um, yeah. yeah. I always, um, I always heard that Mike was very difficult to understand. He, he says that he mumbled, even his wife sometimes doesn't understand him, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. There, he was, well, he was, we were, they were doing something out at the farm once and uh, we were sitting and they left. I think they're just talking about the two upcoming tour or something. And, and they left and then Mike came right back in and then, poked his head, head in the door and says, is my hat in here? <laughs> and I, 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 was still, I still say that. And uh, went around the road to certain people who were there, like Pud was there and, and Jeff Collingham was there, I think. Is my hat in here? <laughs> it's the proper English schoolboy, you know, that accent. Lovely accent, yeah, which is great. Now, Tony's... Tony's got a great sense of humor too. Tony's a, he's funny when you sit down and talk with him. Oh, I bet. He's so interesting and funny. And, and then of course, when he's on stage, he has that very serious persona, but um, I, I suspect he's a lot of fun in real life. Yeah. It's, it's good to, when he laughs, you know, when, when someone, we get, a, you, somebody gets him laughing or he says something, you know, and over the years I've, I've seen him, I've known him for 32 years too. Right. Yeah. All those guys. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm, I'll be missing. And all these, I miss traveling already. I miss my friends. And I'm, 
I'm just coming to the real, realization that I probably won't see that all this stuff again. But I've traveled, you know, I've been to Europe countless times. I've seen pretty much everything there is to see. And, all the tours, yeah. But I, I, I had favorite restaurants over there and people, you know, truck drivers and this person, that person. Now, unless we, unless I decide to go go on tour again, I don't think so. <laughs> you never know, Brad. You're in good health and you look well, good. Well, if I can get my knee right, my other knee, then I, then I can easily do it because it keeps me fit going out the road. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. But, I'll just. But, I'm pumped right now. I just said last week. I said just getting together to play a little bit with some friends from down in my hometown. Uh, he just built a new studio, and so. We're just, I told him, I told him, no, this is, we're not starting a band. This is just so I can play, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That's cool. So I said, if something uh, really worthwhile comes along, then I'll be ready to do it. If I'm, yeah. I, um, hope, I hope you do. Uh, we've come to the end of our interview. And the question I ask everybody is, um, what do you think Phil's most significant contribution to music is as a solo artist? Well, he's a legendary drummer, and he's written countless hit songs. And like we know, he's one of three people in the world that have sold over 200 million records by themselves and in a band. Which is, and then there's Paul McCartney and Michael, what's his name, and Phil. And uh, so that that's a pretty big accomplishment. I don't think the Go-Go's did that, but, you know, it's, 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 he should be in the Hall of Fame. Phil should be in there. He's already in there for Genesis, though, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is. He was inducted in 2010 with the members right. of Genesis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, for his solo career, which began in, I think, 80 or 81, I Face Value was officially released. Mm-hmm. Um, that body of work hasn't been recognized. And I think that's it's a, it's really an oversight. And and I think a lot of it's very political. Um, I think sometimes if you're very popular, um, people don't think you're good, which I think well, see, is- that's the whole thing. You take somebody like Keith Urban, that people don't like Keith Urban. Well, I, I think the whole goal of buying a guitar is to play guitar, get in a band, get famous, marry a movie star, make tons of money, you know, and he's done it all. And people, well, he's, he's sold out. He's done this and that. And the same with Phil, you know, he's, he's selling me all these hit records. Well, yeah, there's a reason for it. And, you know, yeah. Smoke in the Water was a, everybody hates the song Smoke in the Water but because it was a perfect song, but it was played too much, you know. Yeah, yeah, that happens. I think that happened to Susudio. I think for sure people just got, you know, it was so popular and so played. And and, um, so, and that, was back think- when, that was back when MTV was, it was in its prime too. So it was in heavy rotation all day long, every day, and all that stuff. Yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm. Um, and I think when, when people get that high, as far as when I say that, uh, the popularity is so great that you can't sustain that forever. And so the inevitable happens. And I think that that happens to the most famous, you know. Um, and uh, I think it's Phil's time, though. I think, I think, I think, it's time for him to be recognized, and I hope that that it happens yeah. for him. Yeah, I think I think so too, and uh, I'm sure that most people would agree. A lot of people would agree with you. Yeah, I think so. Everybody I've talked to, <laughs> but then all my friends are Genesis and Phil Collins fans. <laughs> yeah, or or in the band. So or in the band, right? <laughs> That's awesome. 
to get Phil voted in the podcast. Check back soon for details on our next episode and be sure to visit us at getphilvotedin.com. On our Facebook page, Phil Collins should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist and on Instagram and Twitter at getphilvotedin. Until next time, I'm Tracy Baker. Keep listening to Phil and do what you can to help get Phil voted in.